Hey, podcast listener, are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. It's not a widget type field. So I think the discomfort with uh, perceiving potential risk, if the volume and pace went up much higher, was uh, felt unsustainable. Welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast, where I help you work less and make more. My name is Geraldine Carter. Longtime listeners to this podcast know I'm on the hunt for better business models for CPAs than the traditional time for money for reports model. In many cases, that model doesn't work well for the client. And for the CPAs who are working long hours, that model doesn't work out great for them either. CPAs may want to do things differently, but they lack examples that they can point to to convince them that they have other available options. Here today to talk with me about his journey switching from the traditional model to a more limited size practice in medicine is Dr. Lewis Wiener. Dr. Wiener is an internal medicine physician in his own private practice in Providence, Rhode Island. He offers the MDVIP program, a different approach to primary care with a focus on prevention and a better healthcare experience. He sees fewer patients, which means more time for each one. Patients appreciate same and next day appointments that start on time and aren't rushed. Plus, they can usually reach him 24-7. His practice also offers other services, including comprehensive and advanced health screenings and diagnostic tests that go far beyond those found in concierge medicine practices. Dr. Lewis Wiener, welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thanks so much, Geraldine. Happy to be here. So for listeners, just to get up to speed on kind of physician business models, if you will, can you tell us in a sentence or two how you run your practice? How does it work? So it runs, frankly, very much like a traditional internal medicine practice that most of your listeners are likely familiar with. It's primary care, it's internal medicine, there's prevention and wellness, but it works in a fundamentally different sense in that we don't have thousands of patients in the panel such that the day is not driven by a population approach to care. So we don't have 25, 30, 35 people coming in the door where the chemistry of each interaction and the time available is focused so much more on acute care and problem solving. This is really a slower pace, more time intensive, more prevention and wellness, more availability, more timely with less waiting and a chance to frankly have a more civilized and human interaction with all of our patients. Um, I always joked about the fact that in the old uh, model, we couldn't say, uh, you know, how was your family and how was your vacation and what's your new dog like? I mean, God forbid we got off topic from something that was very 
problem-oriented and very um, specific. So there is a relationship, there is a pace to the day that is just more uh, agreeable to all involved. Um, but the goals are still availability, uh, full physical exams, doing testing and labs in the office as part of the annual. Annual exams run about 90 minutes, especially for first appointments because there's a past medical history, there are records, there's family history, there's lifestyle, there's stress and sleep and um, diet and nutrition and all of the routines that we all engage in uh, or don't engage in that we should be engaging in. That would be uh, important to wrap our arms around, screening for depression, screening for dementia, of course, age-appropriate evaluations throughout the life cycle. And then uh, having time to sit down and strategize what is that going to look like for care management for that individual through the year. And that may involve minimal to no follow-up for a year because they're just doing so well and don't have many needs. That's uncommon but possible. And then anything that comes up that might prompt regular visits through the year. And of course, an acute care visit. Uh, fever, headache, uh, Lord knows we've all been dealing with COVID uh, questions um, to extreme uh, degrees over these past two years. All of that gets dealt with in a traditional sense, but hopefully not in a hurried sense. Uh, so patients uh, feel confident coming in. Okay. And so whereas a uh, traditional, if a physician were operating in the traditional model, how many patients ballpark would they have? And about how many patients do you have? So traditional panels... We have always thought uh, a mature practice of an established physician over the years has been in the thousands. It could be 1,500, 2,000, but maybe three to 4,000 as a more extreme uh, high number of patients on a roster. That doesn't mean those are necessarily being seen on a regular basis, but it seems to drive volume days that run in the 25, 30 patients per day, which means, as many people will recognize, you know, 10, 15-minute visits with the physician or not. It might be a PA or a nurse practitioner. Um, in my old experience, this is not all practices, but physicians uh, who are trying to be comprehensive tend to run behind, sometimes 30, 45 minutes or an hour behind. So they're long waiting uh, times in the waiting room, lots of people in the waiting room, a lot of support staff in terms of PAs and nurse practitioners, complex phone answering systems and voicemails and, you know, a bank of staff up front uh, trying to process all of that. So it's a really a very high volume, uh, rapid fire and often stressful environment for patients, staff and physicians. Uh, included. Okay. And about how many patients do you have? So the model is capped at 600. So one in this network could have anywhere from three to 600. And that varies based on individual preference and the age of the practice and, uh, and where your comfort zone is. Okay. Got it. So probably a quarter, like just rough math, napkin math, like a quarter of the patient load. I would say that's right. How long have you been running your practice this way? 17 years. And that's after 15 of the traditional practice before. Okay. It's still, for anybody thinking of making a change, if the change works like anything good in life, it feels as new as when we started. Um, so the excitement, the passion, the joy of having a conversation about it, like you and I are having today, is uh, undiminished from, uh, from when I began. Okay. So in a minute, I want to dig into what that transition was like and what fomented that transition. But I want to stay at the moment with what patients say when they come to you, especially for the first time, but perhaps after, about how they experience the service and the value of working with you inside your model compared to what they may be used to receiving. 
Well, I can tell you sort of two pieces to that question, which is one can have a vision of what one wants to provide and portray, and that may or may not be received in that way, right? So I had a hope of creating physical space that didn't feel sterile or clinical or hospital-like. And I can just tell you over many years of feedback, people feel exactly that way. I hoped that this could be as if you're being invited into my home, that you can be at ease here, that you can be comfortable and, and feel at home and not feel stressed or um, or overwhelmed. So I think that that was a goal in the design and decor of the office that was uh, uh, thankfully effective. So step one is feeling at home when they arrive here. And that also extends to the staff who I'm blessed to have some amazing staff that are two, two staff members who are very warm and welcoming. So people are made to feel at home. I think the fact that they're not waiting and that there is this comfort and familiarity puts them at ease, that they know they're not rushed and I'm not backing out of the room to rush the visit along. And that that they can have questions answered and also hopefully leave with tools and a plan. I think often the stress and angst in healthcare is feeling a disconnect or feeling that nobody has their back or feeling that uh, once I leave this place, I'm not going to get back in or I'm not going to be able to get through. And that's why I think often there's a need for a test, a referral, an antibiotic, something to give them to take out the door. But if the if the walls are down and people know they could call back tomorrow or come in next week or have a flowing open connection, a lot of that stress melts away, which is remarkable itself to observe. So I see that and people comment on that. And then when there are recommendations, losing weight, quitting smoking, uh, beginning an exercise program, getting better control over diet or diabetic management or blood pressure, there is a toolkit, there's a follow-up plan, and there's a sense of empowerment and engagement. So I think there's a two-way buy-in. So I feel the people leave here relaxed, confident, comfortable, and knowing that we're going to actually affect change together. It's not lip service and it's not see you later and come back when you have a problem. So I think that just the whole relationship right there. To what extent do you track outcomes and do you know if patients get better outcomes? Do they actually quit smoking or actually lose those 15 pounds? Do they do those things? Can you measure that? What's been your experience of comparing outcomes to outcomes in the traditional model? Absolutely. Well, certainly it's anecdotal to some degree. You can just get the sense for your patients that you've sent home with a plan who come back successful. If that didn't happen at all before, you know that this is a dramatic change. And not that it didn't happen at all, but it's certainly a much more consistent, both in the uh, consistent outcome and both the feedback and in what we, what we observe. And yes, we measure it not only in the practice, but the network, which is dramatically diverse and large now. When I opened this practice, I was the 90th in the uh, in the group. Um, and just to make a quick comment about MDVIP, it's really an affiliation of like practices around the country with attention to these values and this design that we're talking about today. It's not a franchise micromanage, own, or run the practice, but we are linked and we're similar such that there is really the equivalent of a very large group practice around the country, 
patients can visit practice to practice and get a very similar approach and we share best practices one with one another. We have a medical advisory board that I sit on and we're always changing what we're doing and raising the bar for patient experience, for connectivity, for online tools, but also what's happening in the medical world, in the literature, with insurance, so that we can be nimble and evolve and we have done that multiple times over these years. When I started, I was probably the 90th in the network and we must have 1,300-ish. Um, in the country practicing in terms of the physicians. So that's hundreds of thousands of patients, as you might imagine. And it's been a meaningful, um, really, uh, opportunity within a national healthcare system to provide care in this way. And more importantly, to advocate for some of the principles of care to those who are doing legislative change and those who are managing insurance networks to say, hey, here's an approach that has important outcomes data, cost data, prevention and wellness data, patient satisfaction data, which is what everybody wants. It's what every system wants, but here's a way to make it happen. So in doing that data management nationwide, yes, we've tracked and seen lots of dramatic outcomes, some of which, frankly, are rather bold, like trying to minimize or eliminate the risk of a heart attack or a stroke on our watch. Because we dig in aggressively and deeply with biomarkers in our lab work, we do this aggressive counseling. We look at risk at a much lower level, lower threshold of of, uh, identifying and intervening for risk for patients, whether that's lifestyle, inflammation, inflammation, cholesterol, blood pressure, or advanced markers that say, hey, this is a person who would look moderate to lower average risk on the surface, but we have found some hidden things that make us want to be more aggressive. So in doing so, we really have set a higher bar on uh, standards of care within our network that have been very rewarding. And then we have as a result, literature that's been published from the network over these, you know, 10, 15, 20 years to say there are outcomes differences and cost differences um, to, to apply care this way, which has been very rewarding for all of us. I want to dig into a couple more numbers, money-related questions before we pivot. Because we're dealing over here with CPAs and the business side of things, can you talk about how the numbers pencil for you Is the revenue on par with what you would have made or similar or adequate? And what's the pricing like for the buyer? Is this covered by insurance? Is it out of pocket? How does that work? Are people willing to pay over and above? So two questions in one there. If you need me to do them, break them out, I will. No, that's fine. Um, So in general, this model has worked because we've never really left the insurance world. So we still participate with every insurance. And to the network's credit, when this model was being developed uh, years ago, 20 uh, plus years ago, um, this really squared with Medicare law and with with legislators in uh, Washington to say, hey, it's a valid model that is appropriate within the standing healthcare system and it offers this added level of care. So as a result, patients generally have their traditional insurance that works or is limited in whatever ways it was before, but then for an annual fee, they have the opportunity to engage in these higher levels of lab work and office-based testing, uh, as well as the time-intensive approach to screening and um, and processing risk uh, through their annuals and through their follow-up care. So 
for all of the testing labs and things that don't fall under the insurance uh, umbrella, the annual fees have been and it's evolved over the years, but somewhere, depending where you are in the country, between $1,800 and $2,000 for a year for an adult, and that would be parallel to insurance. So things that are covered by insurance would be the same. Things that are under our umbrella are not billed to insurance. They're really two separate things. Those wires don't cross, and we we adhere to that. And then, of course, there are other things they may want to do. Some people say, oh, I want a total body CAT scan, but we'll counsel them that, well, that's not necessarily a valid or a positive thing, and here are the medical reasons why we would or would not want to do that. But then there are also newer technologies like uh, carotid ultrasounds and uh, cardiac CAT scanning and calcium scores that let us assess risk at added cost because insurers tend not to pay for that. But that would be true of any patient in the marketplace. It's not specific to our practice. But we would educate and guide them on whether or not that would be a valid test. And in some cases, those things may be covered by insurance. But for the core of what we do, it's the annual fee we spoke about dovetailing with what's covered by insurance. Um, so between the two buckets, they really have uh, very few holes in their care. In terms of willingness to take on this annual fee, that was actually one early on, and I think it's still done for prospective physicians. That was one of the surveys done to existing practices is, do you want a different type of care? Would you embrace and be interested in this higher level of uh, prevention and wellness and engagement with your physician in this way? And would you be willing to pay a fee for that? And what would that fee look like? And uh, generally, the buy-in is has been, I would say, a non-barrier for uh, for almost every physician and patient that I'm aware of. I didn't ever want this to be an exclusive uh, limiting practice. I've always joked that it was. I, I mentioned to you earlier, Geraldine, the concept of concierge and boutique medicine never resonated with me because I didn't want this to be a country club. I've always jokingly said we don't have valet parking and hot tubs here and and robes. We are really trying to restore a core of prevention, wellness, available, traditional medicine, like I practiced when I started 20 years ago. But as the rug got pulled out from under us, it just became apparent that delivering quality, time-intensive, available, meaningful care at this level, which does not mean all traditional practices don't give meaningful care, but that I really felt I wanted to get back to what I remember doing when I first started. And maybe just a quick side comment, I feel like we were trained to practice this way. I think patients expect and want care this way. And more importantly, the professional oversight and credentialing expects a level of of professional accountability and quality and deliverability of all these things. But suddenly the system ties our hands to say, well, you better perform in this way, but I'm so sorry, you really aren't going to have the time or the tools or the ability to run your practice to make it possible. And that for me was a breaking point where I realized like, oh, we can't have it both ways. You're expecting me to adhere to this level of performance, but I cannot do it in this environment this way. What else is available to me? And I think you asked earlier, you know, what would be a, a tipping point? But I think that was a wake up, a wake up call for me. And maybe just a quick sort of imagery that goes with that, if I may, is it hit me that if you were to go through um, art school and get your MFA and you've evolved your own look and feel and you have a toolkit and skill set and you've trained for years and now you're a artist, a painter, a sculptor, whatever it is, and suddenly an externally imposed system says, 
okay, I want you to now paint only a three by four block canvas and you can only use four colors and you better get it done in five minutes and so sorry that your other uh, skill sets and goals and talents are, are forsaken. I'm, that's really what it started to feel like. And then I thought, well, who's designing that change and why? And, and why would I get behind giving up everything we've trained to do? Um, especially when patients want more. So I think that was the other piece to that wake-up call for me. Patients wanting more. Okay, I want to come back to patients wanting more and the breaking point, but I just want to get the revenue for you. We don't need to know exact numbers necessarily, but like, do you feel like you're fairly compensated? Are you better compensated this way than the other way? Not so much, but it doesn't matter because you like it better. How does the sort of take-home pay compare? Yeah, so it... It is uh, it's comparable or has the potential to be better than an extremely busy, you know, unsustainable pace of practice. Um, and uh, so one can, so my hope was never to do necessarily that I had to do differently. I didn't want to necessarily do less, but if it stayed the same with a practice model that I could get my arms around, then I was very happy with that. And as it's turned out, it's been more productive, more remunerative than my old practice. But it's, uh, you know, it's in the ballpark, I would say. And most physicians are doing equally well to better than they did before. Everyone's approach in their old model varies a lot. But, uh, but the joy of it is that you can, let's say, stay where you were by pulling back on the gas pedal, not by pressing harder um, and being able to have an emotionally and professionally sustainable uh, model. But if one wanted to enhance revenue beyond where they were, mo in most cases, they're able to do that in this way. But do it and what do they say? Work, work smarter, not harder. So it's really that approach. So let's go then to the breaking point and patients wanting better. And you're held to a certain standard of professionality, and yet you're forced into working in a way that doesn't fit. Like the two just <laughs> shall not meet. So what was that breaking point like for you? And what did you do when you were in that breaking point going, this isn't going to work? Like, what was that experience like? I think it was multifold. You know, there's the emotional fatigue and the disappointment to see that this thing you've trained to do and lined up. In fact, you know, medicine's from, and I think probably many careers, but certainly medical training and planning is a very linear process, right? It's not an entrepreneurial, innovative, out-of-the-box kind of thing. Maybe later that comes for people, but there's very little in most of our early years that trains you for that. It's about getting your toolkits together so you can go out and do something in the medical field. Um, and you don't think very much outside the box, or certainly I didn't for many years. And I think probably primary care internal medicine maybe and less so than other other fields in medicine. So you follow this path, and then I think when the when the early years of practice were almost in this vein of what we're talking about today, they felt uh, comparable to what I'm doing now. But then it started to ramp up. The expectations were higher. The revenues went down. The pressure from the people running the practice starts to be, you better pick up the pace, see more people. Insurers say, oh, you're actually doing pretty well. So we're going to now cut down. I don't mean me personally, but in general, I think they see that a sector of healthcare reimbursement is maybe higher than they want. So we're going to ratchet down. So what do physicians do to compensate? Because they have to run a business, as you said, like everybody. So you see more patients. And then the more that we were ever able to adapt 
to changes in the economic um, uh, reimbursement, the more the system would then say, oh, you've seen more patients? Well, let's cut back in this other area. So there was very little opportunity to sustain. And over time, it's like what they say, the rabbit in the boiling water, whatever, the heat's getting turned up. You're moving on a faster treadmill. Patients are more frustrated. You start to feel this core of your professional values and and uh, again, ability to apply them as being compromised. And then the breaking point comes where you feel like you're forsaking the patients you're caring for. And um, to what end? And and how long is that sustainable? And how long can you apologize for it? And that became a real challenge. And then I looked around me and I saw, oh, wait a minute. Many of my peers are coping in other ways. They're retiring early. They're becoming the medical director of a nursing home. They are uh, running other things within academics, all honorable and terrific career paths, but mine happened to be full-time practice. And uh, rents were going up and the you know, uh, demands on productivity were increasing. And I thought, wow, this really isn't sustainable. And if I can sustain it for a year or six months or five years, what's the long view? And uh, and my wife's been a big, maybe another story for another day, but she was a huge piece of, I would say, the, the I can't take full credit for the confidence and the openness to jumping forward because I think she said things like, for example, better at 42 than 52. That was one thing. <laughs> she also lived in this more innovative business world in her own life. So I think she was less fearful of change than I was. And she frankly got in the trenches with me and rolled up her sleeves and really helped me get, get launched in, in many ways. So I think that confidence and support was very important. Um, but I really knew, oh boy, like others around me, I don't think I can, uh, I can do this this way and get behind it and sign my name to it. And that's where I realized uh, I'm going to have to rethink this. And I think the alternative might have been to leave practice. I really got to a point where I was questioning that. And that was particularly sad for me because if you really love the work and you love your patients and you want to do right by them and you feel that you have the tools and the ability, but again, for the external system that's standing in your way, well, then why not advocate for change? And that was a super exciting, I will say, the flip side of the sadness and the hardship was um, empowerment, excitement, hopefulness, a total shift in my own emotional state looking forward, and suddenly the hope of what change could bring uh, was way more empowering than any fear of risk or the unknown. And frankly, the fear of the um, status quo, the risk and the knowns of doing nothing was way more scary than the potential for change. And that's where really the rubber met the road and there was really no turning back, as I recall. Yeah. When the, when the status quo is actually maintaining the status quo is more painful than the change. So let's talk about what, what did you think the hardship was going to be? Just continuing to on this um, this paradigm or this equation of more volume, less sustainability, and then all of the literally emotional and personal physical limitations and tolerance. You can only run so fast for so long. The fact that you didn't I, I should make this about me, but most of us who have done this feel the same way, didn't feel like I could, um, that this was medicine that I had learned and was able to practice with confidence or conviction or comfort, that patients were maybe feeling alienated or would feel alienated or would just leave if this didn't meet their needs, and that, um, and that I wasn't being true to what I had uh, come there for. So I think the idea that that was already the feeling was just going to get worse. 
And then I thought, well, I, if I'm here till 8 p.m., what what's next? I'll be here till 10 p.m. I'm going to have, you know, 35, 40 patients a day of 25 and 30. Isn't like it was just about seeing more of the same and knowing that where I was wasn't sustainable. I think the fear was this is going to break under its own weight or maybe the physician will break under its own weight. And um, and also there's a sense of safety. You want to make sure you're providing good care. I mean, this is frankly medical care. So to do right by your patients in their le- at their um, level and on their terms, but also as a professional, but also making sure you're doing the things you're expected to do. Ask the extra question, look under the hood, make sure you're thinking of all the possibilities and being as proactive and available as you need to be. That takes some time. It's not a widget type field. So I think, uh, I think the discomfort with uh, perceiving potential risk, if the volume and pace went up much higher was... Uh, felt unsustainable. Yeah. Okay. And what did you think was going to be hard or scary about transitioning away? I think, well, it was very new then. So I think the the reality was people may not or will not understand what is this thing? Why is this physician that we all know and has been a part of this community for so long breaking away from the mainstream that was a very interesting experience just personally because there's as i said before we have a very linear path and there's really been nothing about my own personal background that was ever countercultural or rabble rousing or defiant in general um you know i mean we've all grown through our our uh, our own upbringings in different ways but i think generally i had a pretty uh, risk averse, move forward with the prescribed path. And then suddenly I'm thinking, wow, I'm breaking away, but I was breaking away in a way that felt very true to self. That made it rather, uh, I would say, easy. Um, but I guess the angst might have been, and I honestly don't remember a lot of it. As I said, the greater angst was doing nothing. But I guess what will people say? What will people think? What would phys- what would other physicians say or think? Or what would my patient? But I, I think that was a very brief blip. And I think what, what helped Geraldine to get past that was there was so much belief in this being a very valid and appropriate and positive option that's being offered to people. It gives them a possibility. It's not just me, right? The idea is this is for for patients to benefit, that I could get behind this with no apologies. And very quickly, that became one of my mantras, no apologies. And you can come along and embrace or not, but this is where I'm going. And I believe in it. And I think patients saw that and followed it. But so did colleagues. Uh, Unless there was something I didn't hear, I got very little as I recall, other than go Lou, like we hope this works and maybe maybe it'll be good for the rest of us. But I don't remember as soon as I made that mind shift to move forward, I don't remember any of those emotional fears lasting very long or being uh, based in reality. We talked a little bit in the green room about the experience of running a business that lines up with your values and being true to yourself and who you are and how you want to care for your patients. And I'm wondering if we can dig into this piece about feeling empowered and having a renewed sense of hope as you moved into this new model. So now that this transition is 17 years ago, how do you view the value of the experience of going through the transition? Well, it was 
as I as you might have gathered already in my answers, you know, certainly life changing. Prof- I, I used to say professional. I have to keep saying used to because, again, I've sort of had these thoughts in the past, but I still have them today. Professional rebirth was a term I used a lot um, and all the all the energy and excitement and hope that goes with that um, feeling that I kind of got liberated to be back to a center of practice and professional approach to care and values that I had gone into this for in the first place that I had been trained to do. Um, so all of that was just, it's the best single personal professional decision I think I've ever made at, at every level. Um, and I think the secondary benefits are if this is how you feel about your work, then this is how you feel in life. And then this goes home to um, extend to family and, and your home environment. And I think it created balance that clearly wasn't there either. Um, so it really becomes a ripple effect, right? If you can get this uh, ship centered and feel fulfilled and happy and uh, self-actualized to not be melodramatic, then um, a lot flows from that. And then you start to impart that on other people in your, in your work life and in your private life. So there are a lot of CPAs out there who have been through the ringer with the tax seasons that were especially bad with COVID and all the guidance that was in flux and changing. Many work inside a model that will resonate with them, the words that you've been using today, you know, that just like the treadmill just goes faster and faster and where, you know, like how many more, how many more clients going to see and like, where is this going? I'm never going to get ahead here. Might be hearing you and listening to you thinking, wow, I could really use some liberation. I could really use some balance. I sure would love to feel fulfilled. And boy, does it sound nice to have some hope and feel empowered around my business. So what advice would you give to those who are listening, who are thinking, yes, please, yes, please, I want some of that, please. How do I start? What would you say to those folks? Well, I think first, at least if I can just... uh, uh, maybe um, graft my own experience to those who are thinking about change. I think it comes from a perceived need, right? Whether that's professional or personal or both. So I think there has to be acknowledgement that there is a problem or a potential breaking point, or maybe many are past that breaking point. So then are you being true to yourself? I even say to my patients all the time who say, well, I can't do these whatever the things are. I can't take care of myself because I have all these other things. I can't exercise. I can't eat right. I'm on the road. I And, and many people's barriers to self-care are, are absolutely legitimate. Most people's are. But the question is, what do we do with those barriers? How do we reimagine that? What do we use to negotiate and navigate around them? And do we need to make changes? Sometimes we all have to make hard changes in our lives, in our work and personal lives and relationships and and work. And where do we set limits? Where do we say no? I think that's just in general, right? We're all faced with that on a regular basis. Uh, How do we become self-care advocates? So I think that's a very basic piece of this. So it's not just about, oh, I don't like my work or I wish my work were different, but what is working for you or not working for you in your life in general? And then I think that question can be applied to all aspects of self-care. But as it goes to the topic for today, Geraldine, about career path and job and satisfaction, if it's not connecting in a nourishing, self-fulfilling and authentic way, and I think if it's, uh, and if the passion is 
gone or wasn't there in the first place or is not foreseeable in the future, then I think there's a really important decision. Can I continue this way? And to what end and why? You know, where did I sign up to be depleted by this path and, and, uh, and for how long and at what cost? So once that is honestly answered, then I think that gives the fuel for change. So that's kind of where I would have people start. And then the yes, please, of course, follows. But I think first, recognize the problem and the breaking point is their breaking point. And maybe it's not so desperate and dramatic. Maybe it's something needs to be optimized or something needs to be modified. It's not all black and white. I'm sure there are people whose core experiences are really not that bad or they love what they do, but they don't like the number of hours or they don't like the pace of it or they don't like the some of the uh, overhead costs or they don't want to be managed by a third party. They want to become independent. So I can imagine in some cases we might be moving the tiller, not you know turning the boat. 180 degrees. Um, But I think it's important what's not working, what are the goals of change? And then from that point, now what are you willing to do to start to uh, empower a a shift? Um, And that's probably going to take some exploration, learning about what your options are, what are the risks and the commitments required to make those changes, and what are the risks and the downside? Always comparing to what are the risks if I do nothing? That's an important discussion. And you know, people used to ask me because when this model was much newer, it kind of had a unclear reputation. People didn't know what to make of this. You know, is this uh, uh, wealth care, not health care? Like there were just different questions about what does this represent? Why would a physician who cares about his practice make a change like this? And I'd like to think I could advocate for a values-based approach to this decision as you and I talk today. I think at some point it's, uh, it's now I'm going to get off my topic. I'm going to forget what I was just going to say. Um, uh, advocating for, you know, a change that really makes sense based on, on your goals and what you think you're doing. But I did, I lost that thought at the end. Sorry about that. That's okay. I love that. A values-based approach and advocating for your own self-care and change. Dr. Lewis Wiener, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. It's been a joy for me to be with you. Thank you, Geraldine. If you were moved by the idea of serving your clients at a level the profession expects of you and you expect of yourself, it might be time for a change. Stop what you're doing and head over to GeraldineCarter.com to subscribe to my daily drip of business strategy for CPAs. You'll get one easily digestible tip a day on how to position your business, how to package and price your services, and how to create more value with less effort so you can serve your clients in the way they deserve while maintaining or even growing your revenue. That URL again is GeraldineCarter.com. And if you want to find out more about the network of physicians that Dr. Wiener is a part of, also check out MDVIP.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.